Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And if you aren't familiar with Duke Nukem 3D, then you probably aren't familiar with video game lawsuits because this is a property that has been at the center of a whole lot of video game conversation for the past couple of decades, but also a whole lot of legal action, which is, in fact, what brings it to us today. In the past week, I received a couple of tweets, a couple of messages on my DMs and in various places around the internet that went a little something like this. This is a tweet from Justin Green at Anime Cowboy. said, Hoglaw, I found one up your alley. If you're in an IP sale and you have a lawyer to read the fine print, if something is bad or missing in the agreement, wouldn't it be their job to, you know, tell you? And it links to this story, Gearbox Software sues 3D Realms for breach of contract, which is a story that we are going to look at. But I also got some other messages which suggested that this was a challenge that I needed to take up. Another case of I'm suing you because I got sued for something you did wrong or something. Would be great if someone well-versed with copyright and intellectual property law could break it down. Wonder if Mr. Hoaglaw is up for it. And I read that as up for the challenge. And of course, here in virtual legality, we definitely are. But we also have to know a little bit more about what this whole lawsuit is even about. So I've pulled up the PC Gamer article on this, and it says as follows. Gives a little bit of the background for this particular property and who owns it right now, which is one of our virtual legality favorite guests, Gearbox, who I think we've covered in maybe five, six, maybe even seven videos at this point in time because they interact with the law a lot. In 2014, Gearbox sued 3D Realms and Interceptor Entertainment over Duke Nukem Mass Destruction, a top-down action RPG they were developing without the approval of Gearbox, which acquired the property in 2010. Now, that's kind of the starting point. They skip what I would have had as the first sentence, which is, Duke Nukem was owned by 3D Realms and Interceptor Entertainment, or some version of that, because these things are constantly moving around in terms of corporate organization. And Gearbox, the makers of Borderlands and fan-favorite Battleborn, uh, wound up buying the property in order to release their own version of a Duke Nukem game, and they bought it in 2010. But they then sued 3D Realms and Interceptor for making this top-down action game using the Duke Nukem name, as the case was settled a year later, with Gearbox affirmed as the full owner of Duke Nukem. Mass Destruction then morphed into a game called Bombshell, and all was well. So they settled, they went away, Gearbox said, this is what we bought, guys. We bought it all, and don't do this. Don't try to use the intellectual property that we purchased from you. But last year, composer Bobby Prince filed suit against Gearbox, Valve, and Randy Pitchford, over music he'd written for Duke Nukem 3D, which he claimed was used without permission in the Gearbox-published Duke Nukem 3D 20th Anniversary World Tour, which was a remake re-release of Duke Nukem 3D. So the question became, did Bobby Prince, who put his music into the original Duke Nukem 3D, did he license it in such a fashion that that new release was allowed, or was it not? Now Gearbox has filed a new lawsuit against Apogee Software, the legal name of 3D Realms, and co-founders Scott Miller and George Broussard that alleges breach of contract in relation to the sale of the Duke Nukem IP a decade ago. Simply put, Gearbox is saying that 3D Realms failed to mention that it didn't own that music when it sold the Duke Nukem rights. That is very simply put, and there's certainly a lot more for us to dive into because 
as the various tweets suggested, I do actually deal with mergers and acquisitions language, intellectual property licensing language all the time. And I can talk about what this paragraph actually says, which is perhaps a little bit more opaque than others that you might read in similar gaming journalism. Gearbox purchased all intellectual property related to the Duke Nukem video game series, the quote-unquote Duke IP from 3D Realms. In the asset purchase agreement, what is called in the lawsuit the APA, 3D Realms represented to Gearbox that the Duke IP was owned free and clear by 3D Realms and that 3D Realms had the right to use the Duke IP without payment to a third party. And that's in quotes again. 3D Realms further warranted in the APA that no copyright was infringed by use of the Duke IP in the Duke Nukem video game series. And that's what they say. They basically say, hey, look, when you sold this to us, you promised to us that it was something that you could sell and that our using it wouldn't require us to go get consent, go get a government license and pay this composer for using it in the fashion that we would decide to use it. But at the end of the day, it's ultimately a legal question. The reason Gearbox is bringing up this claim is because they got sued over it and they need to drag in the seller because if the seller is in fact responsible, then as part of this whole suit, you can go to the seller and you can say, well, you owe us money under the contract. Now, the reason this question was raised to me was, as you saw in the tweets, shouldn't the lawyers have gotten in front of an issue like this? And in order to understand that more fulsomely, we actually have to kind of discuss the process of entering into an acquisition. I've pulled up a completely random asset purchase agreement that I found on the SEC's website. Edgar, we've talked about it in the past, but if you're interested in these kinds of documents, the federal government in the United States keeps all of them for all public companies. And you can reference a lot of these to understand the structure of what they do. Or you can just visit virtual legality with some regularity and we cover this structure not just in asset purchase agreements, but in all kinds of agreements, a lot. But when you've got an asset purchase agreement, what is happening is that a company owns these particular assets. You aren't buying the whole company. You aren't merging with the company. And because of that, the way this kind of agreement works is you have to list out the assets, and then the seller has to tell you certain things about those assets that you are purchasing. So in an asset purchase agreement, and this follows a rough structure that we would expect in any of these contracts, but remember, any given contract is going to have completely different terms. It's going to have its own definitions. It's going to have its own reference points for what is promised about these particular assets, what isn't promised, but we can understand what Gearbox is talking about when they give that quote or when they put it in their lawsuit if we look at a sample kind of asset purchase agreement. So in an asset purchase agreement, you've got a buyer and a seller. The buyer agrees to purchase the assets from the seller. And then in the structure, you have a lot of definitions, a lot of definitions. We're just going to scroll on this for a while. You can get up, get a sandwich. This is what lawyers get paid for. We write a lot of definitions, a lot of words for that. Continuing on, we keep going. And then you get to the operative bit of language in the asset purchase kind of structure. And this is in every asset purchase agreement. And it basically says, we've got a lot of words here, but I've highlighted the ones that are important. Sellers shall sell to buyer and buyer shall purchase assets free and clear of all encumbrances. Now, this particular document, as you know now from being in virtual legality, as long as you have, has a capitalized term there, encumbrances, which means it's defined elsewhere in the agreement. But we're not going to bake that into our discussion here because it doesn't matter what that actually is defined as for purposes of this agreement because we aren't evaluating this agreement. Suffice it to say, it means bad stuff that could attach to your assets and that the parameters of which we will explain elsewhere in the document if you were actually looking at this as a lawyer or you were drafting it for your client. 
So you will get these assets. We will sell them to you free and clear of anybody else's claims on them other than permitted encumbrances, which are generally classified as those things that you can't get rid of anyway. Like the government could have a tax lien on your property because you haven't yet paid real property taxes that aren't yet owed. And that's permitted because that's just the nature of the way the calendar year works, et cetera, et cetera. But you agree to sell me these things and they will include things like receivables, contracts. And as this particular agreement itemizes intellectual property assets and technology. Now, in the Gearbox document, these are probably defined completely differently, but we know what they bought. They bought the quote-unquote Duke IP. They bought whatever portion of the 3D Realms business is comprised of that concept, Duke intellectual property. And so in an agreement like this, they would have gotten a promise that that is what they are being sold, that it was free and clear of all encumbrances, and that they can use it for the purposes that they want to use it, that the business of duking Duke IPing, whatever it is, making Duke games is something that they can do once they purchase the assets. Then in an agreement like this, you say, hey, what aren't we buying? Which is especially important if you're otherwise buying the entirety of a company, which is not what happened here. And then what are we assuming in terms of liabilities? Now, one of the things you always have to assume is when you get a contract assigned to you, like very well might be the case here where you've got a license involved with a music composer, you have to take on all liabilities associated with that contract after your purchase, right? As described here, all liabilities and obligations under the assigned contracts arising from the ownership operation and conduct of the business after the closing. So if we imagine this as the Gearbox document, you could imagine the capital B business here is the making of Duke games. And you say, hey, if we got all these contracts, maybe there are some in licenses, maybe there are some middleware licenses that are all involved in what we purchased as part of this intellectual property, we are going to be obligated under those from and after the time in which we bought it because you're no longer controlling it. This is what we're buying and we are obligated under those contracts that survive the transaction. Now, this is the kind of place where you could potentially get burned. Let's pretend that there aren't any other promises in this document. Gearbox goes and says, we're buying all this stuff. It's going to be comprised of certain specific registered things like copyrights, but also potentially some contract obligations and or rights. And so we have to take those on. When you enter into an agreement like this, you enter into a term sheet at the start, which says we're going to pay X amount of dollars. We're going to get all this stuff. You're going to make these promises and it's two pages long. And then you sign it up and then you hand it to the lawyers and the lawyers start drafting and negotiating and doing all of the things that lawyers do. And that's a very long process. But during the time that that process takes place, you as the principal, if you're gearbox, or even if you're the seller, are engaged in what we call due diligence. And you might have heard that term either in this space or in your favorite television legal procedural, but it basically means we are going to go look up stuff that is important to us when we are considering this deal. So gearbox says, all right, we want to buy this stuff. Lawyers put together a due diligence checklist and we'll send it over to the seller and it will itemize all the things we want to see. One of the things you would want to see here are your registrations of intellectual property and all those licenses. You want to see all the contract language, all the material terms that could otherwise affect the value that you are otherwise going to pay for this product, these purchased assets. And so that's the due diligence period. And that's one of the reasons why you see somebody like Justin Green saying, doesn't the lawyer have to tell you if something is amiss here? And they absolutely should be doing that. They absolutely should be identifying diligence items that could be a potential issue. 
And this would have also happened as part of your process at Gearbox to go forward with some kind of anniversary re-release, modified as it may be, of the Duke Nukem property. You should have also had internal or maybe even outside counsel looking and making sure that you had all the rights that you thought you had. In an ideal world, an issue like the one described in this particular lawsuit would have been identified either prior to purchase or as part of that development process. And you can blame Gearbox for that or their counsel for that, for not identifying it if you want. But when you are selling an intellectual property portfolio, you are expected to be selling it on the up and up, free and clear of encumbrances, or if it's not free and clear with an itemized list of what the other party needs to know about. That's why if we proceed through this document, we get to the place where you are actually making promises as the seller. And we call those representations and warranties. If we go back to this paragraph, you see them actually use that phrase, 3D Realms further warranted in the APA, which is legalese for they made us a promise. And these are somewhat standardized, certainly the opening bits of this. You promise as a seller that you're a valid company. You promise that you can sign the agreement. You promise that it won't conflict with law or that we won't require any kind of government permission, that your financials are in order. Now, that wouldn't happen in this particular document because this is a place where somebody is buying the whole business. So you need to see their financial records, that nothing has changed in the interim period between when you've delivered certain of your information and when we will actually buy this thing. You promised certain things about your contracts. First of all, that you've disclosed all of them to us. And then also that they are valid, that nobody's in breach, that nobody has done anything bad regarding them. You promise that you have good valid title to what you are selling to us, which makes sense on an intuitive basis, right? If I'm going to pay you millions of dollars, you have to promise to me that you own what it is that I am buying. This is what happens, honestly, anytime that you go into a retail store and you buy something. They are representing to you that they have good title to what they are selling to you and why you can get in trouble if you wind up buying a new Wii off the back of a truck from somebody that may or may not look like they have ownership rights to that particular product. You also promise here that the assets you are selling are sufficient to run the business, however it might be defined. And that might be something that would come up in a case like this as well, where you promised to us that you were selling us all that we needed to have the Duke IP. Now, I don't know that that promise was made specifically in the Gearbox agreement, but it is the kind of thing that happens in these agreements. Sufficiency of assets is a very standard representation. And then most importantly, the intellectual property. Seller owns all right, title, and interest in and to the registered IP, those copyrights and things like that. And seller owns all right, title, and interest in, or has a valid license to use, and all these rest of the legal language, each item of intellectual property or technology included in the assets, what we are selling you. We have all the rights that are needed to sell them to you free and clear of all encumbrances. And also, if that isn't good enough, we promise that the conduct of the business is currently conducted. What we were doing with this portfolio does not infringe upon or misappropriate or violate the intellectual property of any third party. So that is what Gearbox is getting at. And the reason these representations and warranties exist in this fashion is because no transaction would ever get done without some version of this kind of concept. The tweets to me suggest that lawyers can go and they can find out everything that anybody could ever know about a prospective acquisition target. And unfortunately, that just isn't the case. One of my old bosses used to like to say on these calls with clients or with opposing counsel, we don't know what we don't know. 
And the seller is always going to be in the best position to know where the bodies are buried, who has the skeletons in the closet, what things that we can't know if you don't share with us. Note that the process of due diligence is us sending a list and asking the seller to give us the information that we requested. If that isn't complete, if they hide something on that list, you can understand why the buyer needs to have promises like this. Because you don't enter into multi-million dollar transactions. You don't hire lawyers and pay them thousands of dollars to draft documents like this just on the basis of trust. You need to have these kinds of warranties in the document. And that's what Gearbox is saying. Gearbox is saying there was some bit of language in this document that our lawyers have looked at that we think covers us that says, hey, we promise to you that the intellectual property we are selling to you won't require another payment to be made to a third party to use it. Now, I think Gearbox may or may not have a good case because it's an open question as to whether or not what they were sold allowed them to do whatever it is that they did with the re-release. So that's one of the reasons why a court case is actually a pretty useful mechanism here because the court is going to determine not only who's in the right with respect to the claim made by the composer, but also who's in the right with respect to the claim made by Gearbox under their asset purchase agreement. The final thing I wanted to reference in one of these agreements is how this is all handled from a kind of remedy perspective. So you saw those promises but you probably understand also intuitively that the seller can't just hold their millions of dollars in a satchel somewhere and wait for some problem to happen. So for the most part, they have an indemnification obligation that is put forth in these agreements. And not every agreement has indemnification. Some rely only on common law breach concepts where you would just have the right to sue them for damages if there was a breach of one of these promises. But most have indemnification provisions. And as part of that, you set the rules for how they work. One of those rules is almost always survival. Most of the representations and warranties will survive only for a certain period of time after the closing of the transaction. Here you see is highlighted 15 months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, all very standard time periods and all negotiated based on who has the leverage and what the actual notion of the transaction is. But note that doesn't apply to the stuff that is really important to the transaction. The representations and warranties contained in 401, 402, 407, 408, 416, 417, collectively the fundamental representations as well as some of the buyer representations shall survive the closing indefinitely. That also makes sense, right? If you actually look at this list, when you promise us that you have the authority to sign this document, if that turns out to not be the case, 15 years down the line, somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, actually, I own all that property and they were never authorized to sign that document because they never owned what they said they own. Oh boy. Well, that's a problem. And that shouldn't die just 15 months after because the problem for us, the buyer, isn't going to die 15 months after the closing. So you always set out a list of specific promises that last forever. And in particular, in this document, you see the representations and warranties contained in section 410, intellectual property, as well as data security, which are known as the IP representations, another defined term in this agreement, also survive indefinitely. And you see that kind of language when the intellectual property is the crux of the asset that you are buying, is very important. And that would always be the case when buying video game assets or buying software assets of any kind. You would always have additional protections around the intellectual property provisions. So you have these limits, you have a 15-month limit, you might also have 
other limits. You can see here that there are indemnification caps on certain of the representations and warranties, but those are also going to be limited for those specific indemnification items that relate to the foundational reps or, or relate to the intellectual property reps. So you have these situations where you have to go and read the entire asset purchase agreement. You are gearbox counsel or you are seller's counsel and you have to go figure out what the obligations might be. But it would be very silly of Gearbox to have purchased a portfolio of intellectual property and not have received these promises. So when someone asks me, why didn't the lawyers catch this? I don't really know, but it is certainly possible. And seller might have forgotten to even transmit that this license from two decades ago even existed. Whenever you talk about these older portfolios, that is an inherent problem. And that's why these types of provisions are written the way they are written. So it's one of those situations where I know Gearbox is everybody's favorite punching bag in video game journalism. And very often in virtual legality, we come out and discuss how the situation isn't actually as portrayed in a lot of places. Here, I think it's portrayed just fine, but Gearbox isn't being evil. Gearbox isn't being uh, unclear or arbitrary. They are faced with a situation where they're getting sued for something that they don't think they should be getting sued for because they thought they bought the rights and they thought that, as they claim in the text of the asset purchase agreement, they thought that for good reason. And in that kind of situation, this is exactly the type of situation that the law is supposed to avail justice to, right? Gearbox is supposed to be able to go ask a judge and say, could you clear all this up? Because we need to know whose rights are whose. You see here later in the article that apparently Randy Pitchford believes that the composer is probably in the right and that Gearbox didn't get everything free and clear like they should have. And if they had received that information in due diligence, they could have done a number of things at the time. They could have reduced the value and accepted that claim. They could have had a separate indemnification, what we might call a special indemnification that says, hey, this still sits out there. We're not quite sure whether we have the rights to this or not, but if something bad happens, you will very specifically owe us this this amount of money that would be representative of a discount to the purchase price. That that didn't happen, which is indicative of the fact that that isn't referenced in the lawsuit claim that they make, means that this did slip through the cracks somewhere, either intentionally or otherwise. And so this is exactly the kind of thing where I look at it and say, no, this is how these contracts are supposed to work. This is why they are written that way. And I don't see anything unusual here other than the fact that Gearbox is the one doing the suing. Now, I do know because a number of people brought it up that Kotaku and some other places have brought up the fact that nobody should be suing over this property because it's unimportant and it's not valuable, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I would only say this. Gearbox almost doesn't have a choice here. Gearbox is being sued. And so they could just pay money. They could just settle it but they never thought that they didn't have the rights to do what it is that they thought they could do, or they wouldn't have been dragging 3D Realms into it at this point. They would just be hiding the ball and settling it and otherwise sweeping it under the rug. So if that is the situation, regardless of whether the due diligence process was functional, the lawyers should have found it or whatever, Gearbox basically has to go and defend its rights here. And so regardless of how you feel about Duke Nukem or any specific property, this is the kind of situation where I find myself defending Gearbox in this particular action even if they are shown to have not purchased what they thought they purchased, because there needs to be a clarification under the law and clarification is good for everybody.
It's one of the primary issues with intellectual property. It's one of the issues we discuss in this space a lot. The fact that archival is so difficult in video gaming. The fact that we don't have this certainty with who owns what intellectual property and how you might otherwise be able to license it. That we don't have some kind of global or national clearinghouse for orphan works or other companies that have gone under and which trustee in which state might possibly own the intellectual property that we would otherwise use is a problem. And so when we see a lawsuit like this, nobody likes lawsuits. Nobody likes paying lawyers for these kinds of things. Believe me, I know. But we should be happy to see a function for the justice system that is actually good, that is actually designed to clear up ownership rights, and that will ultimately result in an answer if it's allowed to go that far. And as we also talk about in virtual legality, a lot of the times these things get settled and we won't have that specific clarity around this point, but at least all of the parties involved will have clarity amongst themselves. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed this video. We are talking about these kinds of things, business and law, through the prisms of pop culture, movies, television, and video games. All the time, we love to have these conversations. We also talk about serious stuff here. We talked about the Supreme Court's recent discussion of Title VII and employment discrimination. If you're interested in that, we talk about that entire case, 172 pages, in just a little bit over 30 minutes. So I highly recommend checking that one out if you're interested in that subject matter. Otherwise, we are talking about Sony, PlayStation, Microsoft, all this good stuff, always with the perspective of a corporate lawyer, business, and law. So please do share around, like, subscribe, engage, ring bells, whatever it is else that you might do to help this channel grow. I very much appreciate the support. And if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.